everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. A big piece of being an entrepreneur. It's not rocket science, it's just being tenacious and having grit and not taking no for an answer and not assuming that because it's never been done, that means that it can't be done. Not many people trade in both a successful finance career and the chance to get a Harvard diploma for the opportunity to launch a business. But that's what Sarah Paijiu did. And when she found success and sold her first company, she knew that she could never satisfy that entrepreneurial itch by doing anything but building another company. Sarah went on to co-found a startup studio and helped launch a number of other companies, including Jemmy and Rockets of Awesome. But she craved more. Ultimately, she wanted to dig into something that served a deeper purpose. Today, Sarah is the co-founder of Blueland, a consumer products company on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging. The way Sarah and her team are accomplishing that mission has started with creating a new way to develop and use cleaning products and has included a stop along the way in the Shark Tank, where Mr. Wonderful himself, Kevin O'Leary, bought into the company. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Sarah sheds light on common mistakes that young entrepreneurs make when they are starting out, as well as shares the secrets for avoiding those mistakes. Plus, she explains what the holy grail metric is for judging the health of your company. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hey everyone, this is Stephanie Postles, your host of Up Next in Commerce. Today, we have Sarah Paijiu on the show, the co-founder and CEO at Blueland. Sarah, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Stephanie? Doing well. And you're calling in from New York, right? Yep. Good old New York City. Yeah. How's New York life right now? New York life is, it certainly feels, it's funny because I feel like in the beginning, we, we definitely were the hotspot of coronavirus, yep. but now it feels like one of the safer places to be given the high immunity. So it, it's good. I think it's, it's a little unfortunate that summer now it's, it's my favorite season in, in New York. Um, and so it's unfortunate that we're still, you know, for the most part having to, you know, stay at home. But I, I think, you know, we, we, we got in our groove and it period has definitely given at least my family the opportunity to force ourselves to, um, you know, find other ways to explore nature outside, right outside New York City. So I'd love to dive a bit into your background before we get into Blue Land, because I read some interesting things about you, about having some e-commerce companies in the past and dropping out of Harvard MBA program. And I'd love to hear a bit about your journey of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess if I were to start way back, you know, I started my career actually pretty traditionally in finance and consulting. Uh, you know, certainly early in my career, I actually had no aspirations to be an entrepreneur. 
I always consider myself relatively risk averse. So it is interesting to see how life unfolds. Yep. But yeah, I started my career very traditionally, you know, after those stints in, in consulting and finance, which I actually wouldn't trade for the world. I like, I, I really appreciate, you know, the experiences and the skill sets that I picked up and the frameworks it gave me to really um, think about the world and business. But after those stints, I, I decided to go back to Harvard for, for business school, most of all, just to be able to have the time to step back and reflect on what it was that I wanted to do next. Because I think, you know, my early experiences, if anything, taught me that, you know, I wasn't a lifer in terms of professional services. I, I really wanted to be more in the driver's seat and yep. um, wanted to be at a company versus like advising, advising a company. And so, yeah, I made the decision to go to business school. And when I got to business school, it was a really interesting time because there had been, you know, right before I came, a series of female founders that had, you know, started, you know, very impressive companies, you know, Gilt Group, Birchbox, you know, Rent the Runway, Learn Best, um, you know, Katrina, who started Stitch Fix, was just one year ahead of me in business school. Oh, cool. And that was uh, extremely inspiring for me just to see, you know, a set of women who were, young and had a very similar background or set of experiences as myself and see them, you know, so, you know, quote unquote, early in their career, you know, setting out to, to build their own business. And I decided that, you know, given, you know, business school, you know, you can do, you can make what you want of business school, but, you know, it doesn't have to be particularly rigorous. And so I had more time on my hands than I, I did previously when I was working. And so, I decided to really use that time and, and try to start a business while I was in business school. And, you know, a few months in, uh, I ended up, you know, starting work on my first startup, which is, which was Snapbet, which was a mobile shopping app that helps consumers find products and stores around them. You know, I was really excited about everything that I was seeing around smartphones and the mobile space. And this was still pretty early on. So this was almost 10 years ago, um, you know, pre-Instagram days, if you can imagine a world before Instagram. Tough world to start in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, that's the first business I decided to start. While in school, I ended up raising uh, around a venture capital that summer between my first and what was supposed to be my second year of business school. And so made, it was actually a very easy decision to, to drop out of Harvard and you know, continue to just work on, on Snapbet. And I ended up, you know, scaling that business um, for the next about three and a half years to a small team, about 20 people. And then we ended up selling that business to one of the world's largest shopping search engines at the time called Price Grabber. Um, again, almost four years in. And That's amazing. Yeah. What was the process like selling the company? Like, did you actively go about selling your company or were you approached or how did that look? Because I, I heard a good quote the other day that companies don't just get acquired. Like you actually need to actively go and sell your company if you want it to be sold sometimes. It's interesting because I've, I've also heard the opposite, oh, which I can, <laughs> I can relate to, to both, um, both sentences. I wasn't sure where you can go with the, the phrase, mm -hmm. but we, we were lucky in terms of like, we, we received an inbound. Um, oh, nice that kind of tipped us off to like, oh, this might actually be a good time mm -hmm. to sell. And, you know, the context of that period was, you know, I started Snapbet at a time when like, you know, Mary Meeker, you know, and a lot of these industry experts were saying like, oh, you know, mobile is going to be the future. People are going to spend more time on their phones than on their desktop. And that seemed inconceivable. Mm -hmm. um, the early days that she was saying that and, 
when we sold, that's when you were seeing about 30% of site traffic um, to many of the major sites coming from mobile instead of desktops. It still hadn't flipped yet, but it, you know, it definitely felt like it was coming. And so, yeah, we had an inbound from a traditional, you know, online, you know, non-mobile player. And, you know, that kickstarted me to reach out to a few more folks in the space that had a similar profile. Because like, if we were going to engage in these conversations, I thought, let's, let's run a robust process. Yep. Because obviously competition can always help help drive a better outcome. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And, you know, ended up um, not, you know, really engaging a, a banker. I think that's where my, you know, former finance experience definitely did come in handy um, because I did have experience sort of buying and selling companies. And so I understood uh, at a high level what that process looked like. And so, yeah, we were able to kind of quarterback that process um, in-house and, you know, get a few offers and um, ultimately um, find and acquire for our business. That's amazing. So at that point, you got the itch to start another company. You're like, this is great. I'm going yeah. around to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So initially we had, you know, not initially, we had a one-year lockup with the parent company. And so our whole team moved over and it was interesting. I think, you know, initially I was extremely excited about the prospect of being part of a much larger organization, which with, you know, that had, you know, much higher revenues and much larger budget. And I didn't expect, you know, how quickly, you know, like I feel like day one post-acquisition, all of a sudden, like the speed at which we were running, like everything kind of came to a halt. Yep. And all of a sudden my calendar was like full of just meetings with lots of people back to back. And I think it was hard. I think it was hard going from also this small mobile startup where, you know, Apple would make an announcement about the newest feature. And then you know, I, I would get together with my team and our engineers and really think about like, okay, how can we integrate this? How can we, you know, really use this to push our product forward? And in a larger organization, completely understandably, you know, you have much longer product roadmaps, you need to justify, you know, why a change that you want to make is going to add more value to the company than, you know, some much larger initiatives that may be underway. And, you know, we were dealing with 18 month plus product roadmaps, which, you know, mm-hmm. to me at the time, felt like, oh, my God, if I have to wait 18 months to start working on some of these things, I'm like, I'm going to be dead. So it was, <laughs> yeah. um, it was an interesting contrast for me. And so I, I certainly definitely, you know, developed that itch too go back out and start something again. And I think, you know, also as a first-time founder with SnapBet, I had made so many mistakes along the way and I was just dying to, you know, do it again, but, you know, be be better um, yep. the next time around. So then where did you go after that? Like, what was next? Yeah, so, so after that, um, it's interesting because I think, you know, my career, my life had been so linear till pre-SnapBet. Um, but I think that startup journey really showed me uh, both the joys and the benefits of just being open to what life may bring. And that, you know, really just reaffirming the Steve Jobs quote of you, you can't connect the dots forward, only looking back. And so, I mean, at that point, I knew I wanted to get back into early stage company building. I wasn't like, you know, proactively looking for my next business or the next idea, but I ended up reconnecting with a former acquaintance in the, in the e-com space, Ben Fishman, who had also sold his startup, Rulala, which was one of the first flash sale sites mm-hmm. here in the US. And he had sold his company right around the same time I sold SnapBet. And he was looking to, um, he was exploring the idea of raising a fund. And 
to start a series of new businesses. So it wouldn't be like a venture capital fund, but it would be more like a startup studio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thesis that we both shared was that, you know, this at this point it was 2013, we believe that it was still very early innings in terms of direct to consumer. So, you know, at that point, Warby Parker was kind of far and away that preeminent example of direct to consumer, but it was our belief that we would continue to see whole categories move direct to consumer. Um, and many of which we've, we've, we've seen now come into fruition. You know, I remember at that point thinking about like, oh, you were going to see everything from, you know, shoes to socks to, you know, tampons to, you know, yep. vitamins, et cetera. You know, everything is going to develop, you know, a new brand and find more efficient ways to, to directly reach and communicate with consumers. And so, yeah, he, you know, he was like, you should come, come do this with me. And, you know, at that point, Again, I, I didn't have an, a specific idea in mind. I, I knew that I want to be back in the company building stage. You know, I, I loved um, the tech and direct-to-consumer space. And so, yeah, I jumped on board with him um, and was a founding member and partner of that team. And so you know, that startup studio was called Launch or is called Launch. It's still around today. And the goal was to then launch one new business per year, which is what we ended up doing. Um, so over the next four years, we launched Mjemi in our first year, uh, Rockets of Awesome. Uh, Mjemi is a direct-to-consumer footwear business. Mm-hmm. And then we launched Rockets of Awesome the second year, which is a direct-to-consumer subscription kids apparel business. Yep. And then we launched um, Full Lane, which is a clean beauty retailer. And in the last year that I was with Launch, uh, Launch Trade, which is a uh, direct-to-consumer coffee marketplace. How did those individual companies do? The individual companies um, have all been doing great. They're still around today. You know, very proud of to sort of how far they've come. But it, it was definitely a crazy time. And, you know, certainly in a period where, you know, we've seen, you know, the overfunding and, you know, collapse of, you know, many important you know, DTC businesses, I think, you know, very proud to say that, you know, all those businesses are in great shape and still around today. Yeah, that that sounds really fun. Chaotic and crazy, but fun. <laughs> were there any universal truths that you learn, even though the companies sound very different that you were launching there? Was there anything that you, you know, found a best practice and then you would apply it to future businesses? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway probably from, you know, launching multiple businesses is just the importance a focus and you know the importance especially a focus on product market fit in early days i think it's very easy especially when you are venture backed either with access to capital or with this immense pressure to grow quickly to grow into the valuations that you may have raised at it it can be easy to fall into the trap to you know shift a lot of your focus to marketing mm-hmm. and growing you know, but ultimately the best marketing is, you know, an amazing product or service that drives, you know, strong retention, strong word of mouth. And, you know, any marketing spend that you do deploy is going to be so much more efficient and effective if you don't have a, a leaky bucket. And, you know, I think that's one that, you know, is certainly harder, especially in this world where, you know, we celebrate, you know, large fundings and also companies, you know, growing very quickly. And Mm -hmm. I just think there's so much value, especially early days of of almost staying smaller so that, you know, especially, you know, the founders can really focus 
entirely on product market fit and making all the tweaks necessary to really optimize, you know, the, the product service or, or offering. Yeah, I completely agree about that. How did you all go about finding or knowing when you had product market fit where you're like, this is the one let's move forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to draw that line in the sand for sure. I think, you know, an important metric um, or area of, of, of metrics to look at certainly are around retention and repeat because, you know, ultimately, you know, there is a lot of focus, especially in DTC on acquisition and, you know, whether it's customer acquisition costs or, you know, cost, cost per acquired customer, but ultimately, you know, that, that doesn't give you the full picture. You know, that just tells you that, you know, you were able to, you know, have a clever ad and maybe have attracted someone to make that per first purchase. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's certainly a lot cheaper to, you know, have your customer purchase again and repeat with you than having to go out into the market and pay for a brand new customer. Yep. And so, you know, we've, you know, always been, you know, extremely focused on the retention metrics as a leading indicator of the health of the business. Yep. Yeah, that, that's great. So then um, at what point were you at launch where you were once again, like, it's time for me to move on and do my own thing again? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, had, you know, a crazy journey. It was an amazing ride. You know, I, I, I learned a ton about launching new business, having to do that, you know, back to back. But, you know, I think after my fourth year, after the fourth business, I developed a sort of deep-seated desire to do something that was a little more personally meaningful. I think, you know, for so many years, simply the challenge and excitement of bringing a new brand or product to market that had never existed before, you know, was enough for me and it was incredibly energizing. And I still love that aspect of it. But I, you know, at that point, I was, you know, looking to, you know, build something beyond, um, you know, selling, you know, you know, more shoes or beauty products. And I think, you know, that also was heavily influenced by my becoming a new mom Mm -hmm. around that time. Um, So it's no coincidence that, you know, probably the the number of years I've been working on Blue Land is is about the same uh, number of years as my, my, my son's age. Yeah, it's funny how all of a sudden, you, same with me, you get interested in like, what's organic and what's actually natural and... 100%. Yeah, it's something I never paid attention to that much until having kids. Yeah, no, exactly. Glenn, I think you also, you know, start questioning, you know, how you're spending your time, you know, your very limited time. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, once you have children in the family, like it highlights, you know, more clearly for you sort of the trade-offs of, you know, between work and rest of life. And I think, you know, I was very open to how much, how I would feel on the other side of motherhood. I was very open to like, maybe I wasn't going to want to work at all. Maybe I'm, I was going to be so obsessed with my child that I was going to want to spend every waking moment with him, which uh, would also have been, you know, a fine outcome. But interestingly, you know, after having my son, for me, I, I realized that I still really did love working. I, I, I love my work a lot, but I think, you know, I just need to find more meaning in it if it was going to, you know, take up so many hours of my day mm-hmm. and, you know, take me away from my child. Cool. So then what was the first step when it came to like, what really led you to creating Blue Land? Was there an aha moment? Was there something like, tell, tell me a little bit about what Blue Land is maybe first and then how you came up with the idea. Yeah. Um, so Blue Land is a consumer products company. We um, are on a mission to eliminate single use plastic packaging and we are starting with cleaning products. And so 
you know, the first set of products that we launched um, when we launched about a year ago were a set of cleaning sprays and hand soap. And what was really unique about our products was that um, instead of selling you a bottle of liquid, um, you know, these, these products are traditionally about 90% water. Mm-hmm. We've shrunk these products down to these tablets that are about the size of a quarter so that instead of you know, buying a new plastic bottle every time, instead of paying for all this water, which you already have at home, um, you can use one of our you know, beautiful reusable bottles and simply fill them up with uh, warm water, drop in one of our tablets, and you know, it starts to bubble on its own. There's no like shaking or stirring or weird chemistry required. Uh, and at the end of a few minutes, you have a full bottle of hand soap or, you know, cleaning spray. Yeah, that's cool. And our cleaning sprays include like a multi-surface cleaner, a glass of mirror and a, and a bathroom cleaner. Yeah, that sounds really, it kind of reminds me of a Alka-Seltzer where you drop it in and then all of a sudden you have this big bottle of cleaning solution. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And we started there because we found that it was very intuitive for people, even though it was something that was, you know, had never been done before. It was brand new to market. It was something that people could see and quickly understand. Like, oh, that that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? That like water and that tablet could make a bottle cleaner. And so, yeah, those are the products we started with. You know, happy to say like last month, we released our newest category, which is in the dish, in the dish category. So we've launched a dish soap and dishwasher tablets. And in a similar vein, you know, these products were created as part of a reusable, refillable system. So upfront, we sell you a permanent forever container um, that you can refill with our, you know, refills that come packaged in, you know, paper-based compostable packaging instead of plastic. And so our, our dish soap is actually a powder, but it's used very similarly to liquid to the extent that you just, you know, uh, sprinkle it directly onto your sponge, you add water, and then you get a nice rich foam. Mm-hmm. And yeah, our dishwasher tablets are naked to the extent that they don't come wrapped in that individually wrapped in that plastic film that you'll find with most all dishwasher packs. Yep. Yeah. I've never really thought about where does that film go? Does it just go down the drain? Yeah. So it's unfortunate because it does. Yeah, it is sad. It is sad because I think, you know, I think the assumption for a lot of people understandably is that because it dissolves, that it just kind of goes away. Yeah. But unfortunately, because it is a synthetic petroleum based plastic film, um, you know, the plastic molecules do still remain and enter our water systems. And, you know, majority of it is, is then ultimately released into our oceans, you know, rivers and, and canals. Mm-hmm. So when building this company, I read that you had reached out to over 50 manufacturers who all turned you down. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I wanted to hear, <laughs> I wanted to hear that story a bit because I think most people maybe after 10 would have been like, well, it's not possible. Or, you know, we can't find how to contain these tablets or, you know, no one knows how to do it. Tell me a bit about what was that process like when starting to build the products out and trying to find people to partner with to make them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think, you know, a big piece of being an entrepreneur, it's not rocket science. It's just being tenacious and having grit and not taking no for an answer yep. and not assuming that because it's never been done, that means that it can't be done. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when, you know, we initially came up with this idea for Blue Land, it was a crazy idea. And, you know, we had a lot of questions from people of like, well, if it's so easy, why hasn't it been done? And we're like, well, somebody has to be the first. Yep. And so, yeah, I mean, initially, the natural place to start was to reach out to 
manufacturers, because, um, you know, typically, whether it's in the food space or the cleaning space or in the beauty space, you know, a lot of these spaces are fashion, you know, a, a company usually works with a, a contract manufacturer to, to actually make their products. And so mm-hmm. first choice was, you know, finding, you know, someone with the existing infrastructure that could just make this for us. Not surprising in retrospect, because hindsight's always twenty twenty, that you know no one could do this for us. I mean, you know, we were reaching out to cleaning products manufacturers who were creating these products as liquids, you know, and they were pretty much telling us like how we we don't know how to deal with solids, like we don't even have tableting machinery, mm-hmm. and in fact, all the ingredients that like uh, many of the ingredients that we buy for our liquid products actually come in liquid form. And so, you know, not even sure how we would then transform that into a dry product. And and did you have an ingredient list where you like, this is what I want in it? Because that seems hard to me of like, how would I make a multi-surface cleaner? I don't know. Exactly, exactly. So in the beginning, it's just this huge chicken or egg problem. So, you know, we reached out to many manufacturers. And, you know, at that point, it became also just like less so in terms of we didn't necessarily think we were going to find an end-all be-all solution with one of these calls. But, you know, our hope was that we were going to get enough smart people in the space who had been in the space for decades um, to talk to us in each of these conversations. We were going to glean a little bit more information. And, you know, if they couldn't do it, you know, they would potentially know someone else who could, right? Whether it was a scientist, because a lot of these contract manufacturers also work with contractor chemists, you know, et cetera. You know, they might know of an ingredient that they heard of that would be able to help us do this. And so it really was just, you know, our form of, you know, Googling around when, you know, Google could only get us so far Mm -hmm. on these sort of niche topics that, you know, no one had a reason to write up about online. But yeah, I think, you know, it became apparent through these conversations that someone wasn't able, was going to be able to just do this for us. And, you know, everyone was, recommending that, you know, we would need to come to them with a formula. And, you know, at that point, you know, felt like we, you know, hit another wall because, you know, my co-founder and I, we, we didn't have any chemists in our direct network. We had no idea where to even begin. We were both business people. And so we just, you know, after, you know, asking our network, not really finding any leads to any reputable chemists, you know, certainly not no chemists with cleaning products background. Uh, we just turned to LinkedIn. Ooh. I mean, that was just a natural place to turn to, to be able to search for experts based on their experiences. And, you know, at that point, you know, ended up, you know, going down another very long rabbit hole of, um, you know, collecting, you know, we had, we saw that spreadsheet today of like, you know, hundreds of names of, of chemists um, that we found on LinkedIn and, wrote out what their background was and kind of like ranked them and then just started reaching out to them, just started cold reaching out to them on LinkedIn and just trying to get, you know, people, as many people as we could on, on the phone with us, like we were doing with the manufacturers. Did you get a good response rate from people or was it kind of slow? It was definitely slow. Uh, I mean, LinkedIn, there's like all these like, you know, limitations of like, if you're not connected, they may not like readily see your message. Also, it turns out, you know, a lot of chemists aren't actively like checking their LinkedIn yep. um, or messages. You know, we also were just, you know, two random people that were, you know, messaging about this crazy idea that, you know, most recipients on the other side probably had like, I don't, you know, know how to do what they want to do or this idea seems crazy. Or why would I like, are they soliciting me for a job? Why would I leave my big company well-paying job to go yeah. go do this? So, yeah, I think suffice to say response rate wasn't great. But, you know, it's 
you know, to some extent, it also was a numbers game, which is why we, we did reach out to so many people. And, you know, we were able to get a good number of people also just to get on the phone with us. And, you know, there definitely were a set of folks that were still thankful to that, you know, were inspired by our mission um, and the audacity of at least the vision. And we're willing to chat to see if they can be helpful. And that is ultimately also how we found our incredible head of R&D, Syed. It was through LinkedIn. I mean, he was formerly at Method, mm-hmm. which is the, one of the world's largest um, yeah, non-toxic cleaning products companies. And he, prior to that, I mean, he had the perfect background because prior to cleaning products, he was actually working in nutritional supplements, oh, so vitamins. So he also had that hard sort of tablet-like form factor experience. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So how many tablets are you selling today and how much plastic is it removing from the environment if someone chooses that versus, you know, a normal alternative? For us today, I forget the latest numbers, but we've, we've sold tablets in, in the millions wow. at this point, which is exciting because that, you know, that means that, you know, our, our impact has also certainly been in the millions of, of plastic bottles eliminated. I think, you know, people are always surprised to hear that, you know, 5 billion plastic cleaning bottles are discarded each year mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, there is so much focus on like the water bottles and, you know, the coffee cups and the straws, rightly so, um, because I think, you know, those numbers are even, even larger. Yep. Uh, but people are always surprised to hear, you know, how much of an impact you can do by also, you know, swapping out your, your cleaning products to a reusable solution. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Nice work. I'm guessing there has to be some kind of convincing and education factor that has to go on because I'm sure a lot of customers at first, you know, they all worry about maybe the antimicrobial microbial factor. And, you know, everyone's probably, at least when I think about it, I'm like, just throw some Lysol on it or bleach or something like that'll clean up anything. How do you go about convincing people that your product, you know, has the same benefits. And even though it's natural, it'll still work. Like, what does that education piece look like? Yeah. So, I mean, that education piece is obviously so important and has become even more important in during this period of, of time and COVID where, where people are, you know, very focused at keeping, you know, germs, bacteria, and viruses at bay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we received, especially like in March and April, that was like the number one question that we were getting, um, you know, even, uh, you know, especially around hand soap, actually, where people were asking if our hand soap was antibacterial, um, you know, whether our hand soap would you know, kill COVID. And, you know, there we were very direct with the answer that, you know, ultimately, no, our, our hand soap is not antibacterial. It's not disinfecting. Uh, we cannot make the claim that it kills COVID. Mm-hmm. But it was an educational moment for us because, you know, at that point we could start the conversation with consumers that also, you know, are rooted in, in many studies that suggest that antibacterial soaps, you know, might actually be doing more harm than good. As well as, you know, if you look at, you know, the FDA, you know, they've, they've made official statements that say, you know, regular non-antibacterial soap is effective mm-hmm. you know, for the removal of bacteria and viruses and that, you know, hand washing with plain non-antibacterial soap is, is a great way to, to prevent the contraction and, and spread of illnesses. And, 
So I, I think it's, it, it's been, and you know, most people that hear that get it. You will even link them to the FDA site on like yep. proper hand washing techniques. And just to just reassure people like this, you know, by no means are we looking to mislead or greenwash, but it's just more the education of, you know, many times I think there's this perception you need a certain set of ingredients to get a certain job done, but that's probably the marketing behind that too. Like the people who, <laughs> you know, do have the antimicrobial stuff in it. They're pushing it so hard, like you need this when, I mean, I've read the same research about like, you actually don't really need that and you can still have very clean hands afterwards. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's been nice. It's been a nice period where we can, you know, also provide that education um, because, you know, we are, you know, we are staunch supporters of of, of non-toxic formulations. And so any opportunity that we have to speak more to you know, the, the efficacy of non-toxic products as well is, is always, we think, a good thing, not just for us, but, you know, for the broader industry and, and for people on the planet. Yeah. So how do you get people to find you? I'm thinking, you know, if I'm going to the grocery store, that's maybe where I'll pick up a cleaning product when I run out or something. Like, are you in retail or were you planning on going into retail before COVID or are you staying strictly D to C or how are you thinking about that? It seems like it'd be hard to bring people over to, you know, buying online when maybe they've never thought to do that unless it's through like maybe Amazon Prime or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely, you know, one of the larger areas of friction that that we recognize to the extent that it's interesting when you think about it from a, a direct-to-consumer perspective or context, because, you know, I definitely went into this like eyes wide open as to like, this is a category that's going to be harder to convince people to go to a separate online destination to buy the products, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, in, in my past, you know, I've been in, I've been in shoes, I've been in apparel, I've been in beauty. And for all of those, you know, especially something like, you know, shoes or like swimwear, I would argue it's, it's easier to convince someone for like a one-off special purchase, like glasses yep. to go to a separate destination. Um, but to your point, you know, with, with cleaning products, you know, this is a product that, you know, even, you know, our, our early surveys have found that over 80% of people would prefer to just, you know, purchase these either in brick and mortar stores or just as part of the shopping that they're doing regularly anyways, whether it's, you know, weekly or bi-weekly, you know, grocery you know, shopping, whether it's on Amazon or, or at their local, you know, Target um, mm-hmm. or, or Walmart. And I think that because of that, you know, retail will definitely have to be an important part of our future. At the moment, we are still a most all direct to consumer business. You know, we have a handful of, of retailers that we sell through, but still pretty minimal. Like we're with Goop, we're with West Elm, um, we're with Nordstrom. But, you know, I think those are some pretty good names. <laughs> yeah, those are definitely great names. But those are more, I think we still view like, you know, a brand enhancing names and mm-hmm. not not necessarily the place where people are are going to every week. Yep. to traditionally buy these products. Um, but, you know, I think it, it, it's all, you know, comes back to focus. And, you know, we all also always knew that direct-to-consumer was going to be an important component of, you know, launching the brand. You know, I think there's so many benefits, uh, especially from a brand building and a storytelling perspective and explaining the mission and as a new brand to market, just explaining who we are. And it's certainly an efficient enough channel to be able to get to early adopters and, you know, a, a set of consumers. But I, I, you know, we do believe that if we are going to truly maximize our environmental impact and reach as many households 
as we can, then, you know, absolutely, we do need to, you know, at one point, you know, go into retail, yep. physical retail and traditional retail. Cool. So how do you get in front of the early adopters that you just mentioned? Like what kind of digital channels are you exploring? Um, how are you doing your marketing? Like how are you finding customers and bringing them back? Yeah, definitely. I mean, Instagram has been an invaluable channel for us, especially on on the organic side. I think, you know, we've had great success there. So we've been live for right about just a year now. Uh, we have over 170,000 followers on Instagram and all of it organic. Um, we, we haven't really done any sort of paid influence or promotion or anything. And I think it's really helped that because our mission is so integrated into our product offering. Like, you know, we are a mission-driven company, but, you know, that can mean different things for different companies. And for some companies, that means, you know, it's a donation that they're making or philanthropy in addition to, you know, whatever their core product or services. And for us, it's, you know, our mission is just, you know, 100% integrated into the products that we sell. And that's given us the ability to, on social, speak you know, across a range of topics and speak more broadly about climate change and plastic pollution and, you know, how we can, tips on how we can each do our part. And it's been so exciting to see how much that's resonated with the community on Instagram and, you know, how, how quickly we've grown. And, you know, it certainly is, you know, one of our, our largest channels. So it's exciting to see that, you know, organic is something that, that can work for a, a direct-to-consumer brand. Yeah, especially if you have that. I mean, sustainability is a hot topic right now. And like you said, if you're able to lean into those groups and people and tags and stuff, that kind of opens up a whole new market where maybe other DDC companies who are just trying to sell their product and, you know, create brand new content, very different. So it seems like that'd be a very helpful way to get new customers and access to an audience that maybe you wouldn't get access to otherwise if you weren't building a sustainable product. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And it's also been a really great amplifier or word of mouth, I think, you know, we're fortunate that we have a product that's, um, that people feel more inclined to share. So, I mean, every day we get like hundreds of people storing our products and their unboxings. And I think that's being driven by two things. I mean, one is, you know, just the mission. I think that gives people a real, you know, reason or additional reason to want to share our product with their friends. Cause you know, also, Saving the planet is something that we have to do together, and you know the they they understand that the more they can raise awareness for for things that help this planet um, to their friends and community, the you know better place we'll we'll all be in. But also, our products are very visual, um, you know, and, and experiential. Mm-hmm. You know, the the process of you know making the solutions, like dropping in the tablet, you know, showing the tablets dissolve. I was very worried, you know, before we launched Blue, that that would be one of the largest hurdles to our success because, you know, undoubtedly it is more work for a consumer mm-hmm. um, than just going out and picking up a bottle of solution. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's hugely benefited us, um, especially in a world where, you know, with video, Instagram stories, et, et cetera. Yep. So um, what, when you're thinking of like the health of Blue Land as you're building it, what kind of metrics are you looking at specifically maybe around, you know, your website and how to know if you're really doing well? Yeah, it's definitely starting to get, you know, a lot more complicated now that we have so many more products. I think, you know, early days, 
it was a lot simpler um, given, I would say early days, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot more straightforward given, I think like nine, over 90% of our new customers were coming in through the same kit. They were all purchasing our four piece kit. And, you know, because that initial basket was pretty uniform, mm-hmm. it was much easier to sort of track those cohorts over time and, you know, understand both you know, acquisition behavior and success, as well as retention behavior and success. You know, I think now as we look at our business, there's, you know, there's a lot more granularity. You know, we've, we've layered in more fragrance fragrances. Um, we have at this point, I think six different kit permutations that you could opt into. There isn't sort of a clear kit that all new customers opt into. We also have many people that are adding refill packs now to their kits in their first purchase, which you know changes the way we have to think about repeat curves and retention because um, you know a customer, if they're loading up on you know a dozen multi-surface cleaning tablets in their first purchase, you know that's actually a great thing for business that drives higher AOV. You know it's, it's certainly also better for the environment because we're only shipping that package to them once, and they may not need another package from us for a year, at least on the multi-service cleaner side. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, we then need to look at our data in a much more nuanced way and cut it in, you know, so many more different ways to really understand what is happening. But yeah, I mean, uh, largely, I mean, you know, we are very focused on, you know, customer acquisition costs, you know, the conversion on our site at, you know, every, every part of the funnel and then repeat based on repeat and repeat basket size based on original basket size and channel. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there any best practices when all of a sudden you have a lot more data to work with and you're trying to actually see trends and, you know, parse out the noise? Is there anything that, I mean, I'm assuming with your finance background, you're probably already very good at data. I also have a finance background and how long I had to be in sheets and looking at numbers all day was crazy, but you do learn how to actually parse through large data sets. Like what are some best practices that you say worked when it came to expanding your product catalog and actually trying to find trends and things to pay attention to? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think the main thing is making sure that you're being thoughtful about the tests that you set up and, you know, setting them up in a way where the data will be valuable um, and also just keep taking into account like your N or how much volume you're getting. And so not trying to test too much all at one time. Mm-hmm. And cause I think, and I bring up testing because sometimes it's hard to look at just the organic data that you're getting and make a determination as to what the value uh, drivers are. So for example, like, you know, a question that, you know, we're trying to solve at the moment is that, you know, is, are there, better kits for people to start on, right? Like, do we have a preference as to like, you know, is a customer going to be more likely to stay with us? Is a customer more valuable if they buy into, you know, kit one versus kit four? And it's hard to look at the data that you have without setting up a clean test because there may be other factors that have driven consumers to certain consumers to kit one versus a kit four. Mm-hmm that would then make their retention characteristics different. So to do a very clean test, you would want to ideally, you know, place, randomize and, you know, drop off a a set of consumers to either kit one or kit four. 
and then see if, you know, those two cohorts perform differently over time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's just, you know, making sure that you're, you know, we're being really thoughtful with the test, making sure that there's not other confounding variables that we're introducing, like, for example, making sure we're using the same ad creative, right, to drop people off yep. on kit one versus kit four, you know, taking into account, again, how much, you know, traffic we expect to drive because and whether, you know, how, how quickly that test will wrap up. Because, you know, certainly you could think like, oh, we're going to do this test for kit one through seven and do seven kits that we're landing on. But, you know, it may also just take forever to get any, any type of answer of statistical significance if we're dividing up our volume in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so things like that, but certainly something that, you know, we're thinking a lot about and is, yeah, is, is certainly far from straightforward. Yeah. Tough problems to solve, but <laughs> I'm sure very informative and helpful for the future. Yeah. So I know we don't have too much longer, but I did want to ask, we've been kind of on a Shark Tank kick lately. We've had a couple of companies who've been on Shark Tank before you as well. And I wanted to hear very high level. It doesn't have to be a really long story, but how that experience um, was for you and how you, you know, dealt with the increased demand and, you know, your inventory and everything that came after being on the show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what a wild experience. It's always actually been a half facetious, half serious like, dream of mine to go on Shark Tank. Yeah. Um, so it was really exciting. I think, you know, we we overprepared, you know, every step of the way, which was right in terms of, I don't say that negatively, mm-hmm. but, you know, everything from, you know, leading up into the pitch um, to, you know, making sure that we were ready from a site perspective. You know, our, our team still says today that we were, that we've never been so prepared for anything outside of Shark Tank. That's amazing. So, and it's always like, it's something that we always point to, even with like our new product launches or other things that we're trying to do. Cause you know, especially in startup world, like you're rushing, like you're yep. scram, it's never. And we always point to like, look how well Shark Tank went, right? Cause we spent the time, we were organized, we put the time in and yeah, it definitely pays off. What kind of things did you prepare? Like if you were to look back and say these two things, you know, were the best things we did to prepare or yeah, what, what were some of the levers there that you were working on? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think on the, um, before filming on that side, um, it really was like all, all hands on deck, like full team for that week leading up to our Shark Tank filming. We pretty much focused on Shark Tank. I mean, especially um, Syed, our head of R&D and myself, who are, who are going to go into the tank But even the rest of the team, you know, we required probably at least twice a day for about an hour and a half each. So about three hours a day, whole team would be on just grilling us on like every which way with the hardest questions they could throw with, you know, the most inappropriate questions they could throw at us. Um, Sounds kind of fun. It's it's (laughs) kind of fun. And it was, you know, in the beginning, it definitely was incredibly embarrassing (laughs) because it was so hard. And you're you're just like, um, but, you know, after that, you know, it it really did prepare us for, you know, anything that could come our way in the tank. So Mm -hmm. that was great, Uh, including like lots of like they just threw lots of mental math at us, which, yeah. If anything, I don't know if they got us better at mental math, but it just got better at, it got me better at controlling my facial expression when I didn't know something. Yep. Yeah. Or just delaying the response so long, they forget what they asked maybe. <laughs> exactly. 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 Um, so that, that was very valuable. And then from a site perspective, you know, we, uh, we really did everything we, we could possibly do to make sure that the site didn't come down. Um, you know, we spoke with a lot of other companies 
who had aired on Shark Tank to get their tips for what to do. And that was really helpful. Like, you know, the guys that plated had like a landing page ready because their site did go down. And so they were very thankful that they did have a landing page ready to capture email addresses. Mm -hmm. And they were able to capture like a ton of email addresses that way. And, you know, then email the people when they were back up and running. So we did that. You know, someone, another company had a really great idea to swap out all the videos or GIFs we had running through the site. So anything that was heavy, that takes up a lot of speed or memory and just carrying it back. So we replace all the videos on our site with images. Again, just to lighten up the site as, as much as we can. Cool. Yeah, that definitely seems like some good due diligence. And you guys ended up getting a deal, right? Yep. We ended up getting a deal with Kevin O'Leary, um, who has been you know, fantastic and, and, and really supportive and you know, shockingly accessible. I was going to ask that, like, do you actually get time with him? And is he actually helpful? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we get a lot of time. Give me all the gossip. Yeah, we get a lot of, I mean, early days, I was like, is this too much time? Like, <laughs> yeah. I have other things to do. But I mean, I, you know, we probably speak by phone or text once every two weeks or so. And definitely like, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. way more than I actually thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In early days, I mean, I feel like I was talking to him like multiple times a week, especially like right coming off of Shark Tank when we had a lot of opportunities. And he brought us onto QVC like the week after Shark Tank aired. Oh, nice. You know, we've done multiple press interviews on TV together. It's been great. That's really cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. So now we are kind of running out of time. Is there anything that you want to cover before we jump into a quick lightning round? No, I don't. I think we covered a lot of ground. All right, cool. Well, let's jump into the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I will ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer with whatever comes to mind. Okay, great. Are you ready, Sarah? Yes, let's do it. All right, I'm going to start with the hardest question first because you've been in the industry for a while and I feel like you'll have a good answer to this. <laughs> what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Ooh, in the next year. Ooh. Oh, that one's harder yep. in the next year. I mean, I would say packaging. It's a it's a non-traditional answer, but I, I do feel like we're we're seeing the tides are are shifting. I mean, I've just started to receive my first set of Amazon packages that for once are coming in paper-based envelopes mm-hmm. um, instead of plastic-based envelopes. And I think that's gonna that's gonna be send a great signal to the industry of, you know, we need to be a lot more thoughtful about, you know. With all this e-commerce comes an incredible amount of packaging waste and, you know, consumers are becoming, you know, so much more knowledgeable and mindful about, about the waste that they're creating. And I think we'll, you know, start demanding this of of companies. Love that answer. What's up next on your reading list? What's up next on my reading list? So I, I've been incredibly inspired by, you know, the, the Black Lives Movement, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter movement. And so I have picked up a, a ton of books in that process. And my next one actually by my bed right now is White Rage. Nice. And have you started it yet? I have not started it yet. We'll have to circle back and let me know what you think of it. Yes. If you were to build another company, which I feel like you will probably be doing in your lifetime, what would that next company be? Oh, geez. It's so, that's so hard. That's so hard. Um, that's so hard because I mean, I love, I love the company I'm building at the moment. I, I always yeah. tell my co-founder that I don't think I'd want to sell this business because I don't know yeah. what I would work on next. It's just an incredible mix of, you know, product development, science, and really doing, you know, things that I, 
I, I believe will make a you know huge difference in the world as well as just educating people in areas you know outside of our products, which has been incredibly gratifying. Just being able to you know talk about. I mean, we have email like emails probably like a couple times a month, and certainly social posts multiple times a week where we're just talking about things that have nothing to do with our products, but just ways that you can cut out single use plastic from your day to day life. Yep, I do think that if I do move on past Blue Line, it, it certainly is going to be you know something in and around the space, the space as well, in terms of, you know, whether it's sustainability, sustainability, exactly. Sustainability and climate change. Cool. Yeah. It would seem sad to throw away all the knowledge. Uh, I've heard that quite often where a lot of times founders will just get eager to move on to the next thing and they don't always properly value all the knowledge that they built up either, you know, from their current company they're at or the industry they're in. And yeah, that seems great. Totally. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Ah, so I, uh, next up on our Netflix queue is season two of The Politician. Okay. I know I'm a few weeks late, but I've actually heard that um, I, we, my husband and I love season one and we heard season two, there's actually a lot of focus on plastic pollution. Oh. And there's actually a, a, a character who's really leading the charge um, on eliminating plastic from her and other sort of day-to-day lifestyle. So it'll, it'll be interesting to, to see their spin on that. Yeah, no, that sounds cool. Yeah, there's also a series. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like with Zach Efron, which at first I was like, nah, how is he going to do a series on like big problems and sustainability and things like that? It's actually quite interesting. They, uh, oh, I can't, I'm trying to think what it's called. Maybe producer Hillary can look that up for me and put it in our notes here. But yeah, he went through uh, first, he like visited Iceland and was kind of showing there, you know, all the renewable energy that they generate for Iceland. And then episode two was talking about water and it went into like France's water system and how they purify it in a much better way than a lot of places in the U.S. do it. So another one just put on your radar, but I don't know the name of it. I just know Zach, Zach Efron's like hosting it. No, that's great. That's I haven't seen him in anything since High School Musical. So I'm excited, exactly. I'm excited I know. to see him all grown up. <laughs> I know. When I saw him on there, I was a little bit confused. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and then I was like, okay, you're, you're doing a good job. This is cool. <laughs> all right. Oh, let's see. Hillary put it in there. Down to earth. With Zach Efron. Pretty good one. Very interesting. Great, great, great. I'm going to add that to my queue. All right. And then the last one that I like to, I've recently started asking, what is the number one tool or app or technology that you use day to day that's, you know, most helpful to you or that you either learn the most from or that you love the most? Yeah, I, it's it's got to be Instagram. I, I wish I had a more creative answer, but... No, nope, I love Instagram. I, I learned so much from others and from incredible resources. And I think most recently, you know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has been, you know, an eye-opening one for me in so many ways. And I think there's so many ways that, you know, we're trying to even as a company, you know, make sure that we, you know, we are sustaining that momentum, but, you know, really have been grateful for for that platform um, as a source of, of education. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. All right, Sarah. Well, it's been so much fun talking to you about this. Where can people find out more about you and Blue Land? Yeah, so people can um, check out our products um, and learn more about our products at blueland.com. You can also follow us along at Blue Land. And I also post, um, you know, lifestyle tips frequently to my personal account at Spaiji. That's S-P-A-I-J-I. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And we will definitely be following along in your journey. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Yeah. 
Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.